Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behaviour, sleep and more. Alison Davies was an adult when she discovered she had autism. The diagnosis changed her life. A former music therapist and mum of two, Alison believes in the power of music to help regulate our brains. She's here today to tell us her story. Hi, Alison. How are you? Hi, Siobhan. I'm good, thank you. So tell us how you came to be an adult when you got your autism diagnosis, because most of us would think of that kind of diagnosis happening in childhood. Yeah, we tend to think of autism as actually a childhood disorder. Actually, we think of it as a childhood behavioural disorder a lot of the time, and that's just all misinformation, and we believe that because that's what people used to believe. Um, In fact, you know, if you're autistic, autism is your neurotype, so you'll be autistic for your entire life. So there are many, many autistic adults around. But, you know, when we were children in the 70s, 80s, 90s, there wasn't a lot of uh, knowledge around autism and all the different ways that it could be and present in the world. Um, We really only knew, you know, it was really only thought that boys were autistic and it was a very specific type of um, presentation. They'd rock, line up trains, not talk and scream. In fact, that's one way that autism can look, um, but there are many, many more. So there are a lot of undiagnosed autistic people around. And for me, it came when... um, my daughter was, we were going through the process of assessing my daughter when she was four. Um, and I was looking at all the criteria. I was looking, I was reading about what we know about autism now because I was a therapist, but I was still even uh, working in in old fashioned and outdated um, paradigms and information around it. So I was updating my knowledge and I was reading and I was like, oh, but this is like me. Don't we all do that? And I was looking at the the list just going, I do that. I do that. I do that. <laughs> and it became very clear because at that time I was struggling a lot in my own life and we sort of just put it down to postnatal depression, but everything I was struggling with absolutely fitted. And when I looked throughout my whole entire life of all the things that I'd always found difficult and that confused me, Um, And I'd always wondered, is this what it's like for everyone? When I looked back at my entire life, everything fitted um, when when I put it in the framework of autism. What were those struggles? Because people might assume that you were having challenges with certain things, but what was your actual lived experience like? My experience were, it was mostly an internal experience. It was not something you would have seen outwardly. I mean, I didn't appear anxious internally I was very anxious I was really anxious about issues of social justice so if anything didn't feel fair at all I was you know I was struck to the core with anxiety and um you know to the point of like I I couldn't eat I really loved honey on my toast (laughs) but I felt so guilty for Vegemite because I didn't really (laughs) like Vegemite that I forced myself to eat Vegemite so it didn't feel left out like this is the way I was living and that's just one tiny example but I was living that way in lots of different ways and it was all internal. No one would have known I didn't like Vegemite but was forcing myself to eat it. I also have synesthesia, so I was experiencing um, multiple sensory experiences at once, mainly with numbers. So I would see a number and 
for example, 97 is red and like forest green. And I hate that combination of colors. So if I ever saw numbers with nine or seven in it, I just didn't even want to look at it. So it made learning, it made maths really difficult. What an incredible thing though. That sounds magical, what you're talking about. Well, it's quite magical. Like, yeah, it is. It was very, very, very vivid as a child and it's less now, but it's still there. I know what colours go with what numbers. Um, And it makes me pleased to see some numbers and really angry when I see other (laughs) numbers. (laughs) So, you know, I just thought, I wonder if everyone has this, but it's not as a child, you don't think to go, hey, do you get colours with numbers? Yeah, and if you'd asked a peer, they'd probably go, no, and what mushroom did you just eat? Yeah, exactly. I felt rage with the feeling of my clothes touching me, um, but I never thought to tell anyone that, and I never, uh, it never came out externally, so I never, like, ran out of the classroom or took off my clothes or uh, <laughs> did anything like that, but I still remember this red-hot rage that would vibrate through my entire body at the feeling of my clothes touching me and my socks and my shoes um, or my hair being brushed or wearing a hat. I still won't wear a hat. Yeah, and, I mean, they're just a a few things, but I also felt like there was a lot of times where I I wouldn't speak and I was just called shy. Uh, Looking back, it was very clear that it wasn't I was going through non-speaking times, probably in relation to my anxiety, and I felt very trapped inside myself. I didn't know I didn't understand everything that was going on in the world and so I just copied other girls that I wanted to be like. So, like, outwardly no one would have known. It was all inner. It was all my inner world. Which is really interesting because I've seen you speak publicly and I've met you in a social setting and you strike me as an extraordinarily personable, connected and warm human being, which isn't something people associate with an autism diagnosis or someone who has autism. So does that happen often? That goes back to this misinformation that we think autistic people are uh, non-empathetic and struggle socially. In fact, I and I know a lot of other people in the autism community have learnt to be a very, very intuitive and instinctive and learn, have learnt to know what every single social interaction in somebody else's face means. So I can look at someone's face and know exactly what their expression means and then I dial back or dial in or like alter the way I socialise to match what I'm picking up because autistic people have to be quite, learn to be quite intuitive because we don't always understand the world cognitively. We don't always understand what people are talking about you know, when people make small talk to me, I'm like, I don't even know how to how to reply to that. I don't <laughs> even know what that means. And so I just have to really analyse the face and the body language and the energy that's being created here so I can, like, use all of those cues to come up with an answer. Mm. So, in fact, we become geniuses at socialising and I know how to look someone in the eye and I never got, I never got forced to make eye contact. However, I've always found it difficult and I always have these strategies of when I'm looking at someone in the eye, I'm counting in threes and I'm counting little angles in their eyeballs and doing all these kinds of weird things to to just keep focused on the person, especially if they're talking about something I'm not interested in. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that's a skill I could learn. Yes, it comes in handy. It, may, it sounds like it makes you um, an incredible... I guess, in a way, an incredible actor 
as well yep. as a, a multitasker of the highest order because you're you're not actually physically multitasking, you're mentally multitasking. Yeah, that's a really, really good way of describing it. And, and acting is exactly what it is. It's, it's, I always just feel like it's always a performance. I have to really look hard inside myself and it's inside my experiences to go, where am I just actually genuinely expressing myself right now? And where is this just part of the performance that I'm really bloody good at? Because sometimes it gets confused. I get so good at like talking to people and socializing and doing these conferences. And sometimes it becomes a, a, it almost becomes a form of external validation for me. And I sense myself just going along in this performance. And, you know, that's, that's okay. What I've come to realize is that's, that's how it is. That's okay. Yeah. But yeah, it is really nice when I find myself in moments of just pure self expression where I'm not, trying. Um, and that often comes with other when I'm with other autistic people and other neurodivergent people. That sounds like another interview entirely. <laughs> a yeah. very fascinating Let's one. We will do it at a later date. But going back to that time where you were going through the process of your daughter being diagnosed and you started looking at all these things going, huh, that sounds like me. What was that revelation like? Was it scary or liberating or, or what was it like? Well, it, it was honestly the best, most important, most significant moment of my life. I'm not even exaggerating. When I um, realised I was autistic, so I realised first uh, and then I went and, and had my assessments and was diagnosed. But when I realised uh, when I self-identified, which is very legit, so there's, it can be very hard to get an autistic diagnosis later in life, and it's also extremely expensive. Mm. So a lot of people don't have access to that. So self-identification is hugely acceptable, and really a lot of people in the autistic community are self-identified. So when I when I self-identified, um, it was like everything made sense. Like I, in that moment, it happened during the night. I was asleep. I had a dream, and in the dream, it was like it ended with the words, I'm autistic. And then I woke up and it was so real. And I knew in that moment it was true. And I spent the whole night sitting in bed, looking across my entire life and everything made sense. And all of a sudden, all of these stories I'd told myself about being lazy or dumb or selfish or unorganized, um, forgetful, all of those stories, just, I, I literally felt them drop off me like veils. It was quite a incredible experience. And all of a sudden they were all re just replaced with I'm autistic. I felt free. I felt like finally I made sense. And all of the times across my life where I wondered if this is what it was like for everyone, I realized that actually, no, it's not. And that made me feel good about myself because I think there was a lot of internal gaslighting and stuff that I've experienced my whole life for thinking I should be able to do this. Why is this hard for me when this is easy? So it was very powerful and, you know, it was the beginning of the rest of my life. You know, I can't imagine how I would be coping right now if I still just thought that I had postnatal depression and, and didn't have this clarity about who I am and how to support my needs. So can you talk to me about that? So as you mentioned, you were a music therapist and looking to update your own knowledge and you said your knowledge was out of whack with what the current research was and, and what people knew how did you begin to explore what your particular 
type of autism meant for you and how did you find the right kind of supports? I just want to add to that. I think that's a really important thing for parents to hear because that can be one of the hardest things to do once your child is diagnosed is to find the right support for them because the spectrum is so wide and varied. And so I think sometimes parents despair that A, they're going to find the right support or B, that the right support exists to help their child. Yeah. And this is especially true because when we do get our diagnosis, we're all sort of pushed off down the same path, which is the medical model and, you know, into the arms of OTs and speech therapists and psychologists, all all of who are brilliant and have a place. So this is nothing I'm about to say is personal against these brilliant allied health uh, modalities that are very important. However, there's no real um, support there to find our own potential paths. And when you listen to the voices of autistic people, they are saying actually what we would prefer and what we feel would be less traumatic and more vital to our sustainability as people is to be supported to actualize as autistic people, not gone to therapy to work hard to act less autistic. Now, obviously, there's a real important need here for everyone to find the path, what they need, because certainly we do need in many instances supports that will help us cope in lots of different ways. But there's also a very, very important part of this, and this is what I found for me and for my daughter, that, you know, it was equally as important for her to just find other autistic children to be with and to know that she's autistic and to be able to say those words out loud and use that identity and like own that and rock that and to understand her sensory needs so that she can put up boundaries in places like I can't do that that's too noisy or can you stop touching me or those kinds of things um so Really actualizing as an autistic person because we are incredible. Mm. Our potential is amazing. And it doesn't always come from the therapy path that is designed to sort of help us assimilate to a neurotypical classroom or a neurotypical workplace. Uh, But we don't get told that. We don't get told that when our children are diagnosed. That's something you need to hear from an an autistic person to really think, start thinking about. Was it natural for you to find that answer in music? Yeah, it really was. But, you know, in the world I was a music therapist, but in my own family the music therapist hat comes off and the mum hat comes on and I still just went down the path of sort of doing everything I was told. It was like when it was to do with my own daughter, I was not a therapist anymore. I just couldn't remember anything I knew. (laughs) So I just did all the things I was told and then I remembered that actually – I have a lot of knowledge and experience of my own that I can be incorporating into the mix here. And what about for yourself, Ali? Like on one hand, there were people telling you what you should do for your daughter, but having realised yourself that you were autistic, how did you work out your own support network? Because you wouldn't have been able to help her before you helped yourself, surely. No, I really, um, it was very helpful that I was diagnosed at the same time because then I re- I was able to really tap into my experience and compare hers to mine and look at how things felt for me as a child and really support her from that angle but yeah I definitely needed my own support and luckily that came from me from me having an amazing husband who was just open to 
support me in whatever way I needed. And we really changed our lifestyle. I quit my job. I stopped because music therapy is very noisy (laughs) and (laughs) sound is like noise is one sensory issue that is like really debilitating to me. Um, So I quit my job. Uh, We changed, you know, every facet of my life. I looked at the clothes I was wearing and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm wearing like denim jeans and this is making me filled with rage. I (laughs) I started to realize that my clothes were making me angry and uptight. And I started just wearing flowing things that I couldn't feel touching my body and everything changed. And I started, I stopped packing the lunch boxes and organizing dinner because I have a lot of traumas come from eating as a child because eating has always been a big problem for me with textures and foods that are touching and all those horrible things. Uh, And my husband started doing that and so much changed. So I had to do a lot of self-exploration and work out what was difficult for me and experiment with why. And we just made little experiments in our home life that made huge, huge, huge changes. And all of a sudden life started to become a lot easier. So so it wasn't about accessing therapy. It was about knowing what I need for myself and making changes in my lifestyle. It's so interesting you say that because people will often say that the world is not made for people on the spectrum. The world is not made for people with a disability. And I think you've really clarified there what the world looks like when it is accommodating to difference, right? So you might be thinking as a parent, okay, I'm going to cut off all the tags from their clothes because I know that bothers them, but not Mm -hmm. thinking, hold on, maybe I'll talk to the school about the uniform and see if they can wear tracksuit pants instead of that starchy stiff fabric. Like, I don't know, that was just a a sort of light bulb moment when you said that then. The the difference of flow for a child's life or an adult's life, if we start to recognize the physical things we can change so that their experience on the sensory level is much more pleasant. Yes. And I feel, I hope that this is where we're headed the more autistic people, especially if you share their own lived experiences, the more insight we have into what environments are like for them. And I would love workplaces and schools and shops and homes to really go, oh, how can we become more sensory friendly or how can we become more inclusive with our expectations or the way the environment is set up for all children, which includes um, neurodivergent children with particular environmental needs. It, I mean, it, it makes the world of difference. It's the difference between being able to talk and not being able to talk. It's the difference between being able to do a job or listen or learn and not being able to. So, for example, if I wasn't counting in threes in my head and doing all these other sensory things to concentrate when I was at school, I couldn't look at the front which meant I, and I couldn't listen, which meant I couldn't learn. So I was constantly doing all these other types of like inner <laughs> weird things that I don't even know how to explain just to be able to listen, you know, and there's so many, if we knew all of these things that children were experiencing, there are so many tiny ways that we could support that in the classroom. It would make, it would completely change the shape of our children's uh, nervous system regulation. And I can't even emphasise how important it is. Talk to me about music. So on one hand, you had the music therapy work that you did that, as you said, was often uh, loud and intrusive And then Mm -hmm. you have the music that you talk to your community about online. You have your Mm. beautiful UFO drums and these gorgeous 
sounds and songs and movement. What place does that have in your experience dealing with autism? Well, yeah, I really and, and consciously made a choice to step away from the music I was doing, which was just making music, you know, the way we think of it with instruments and noise and loud and um, step into, well, what is music and how can I mu- use music as a source of safety within the body? So I really then started to focus on, I, I trained them with the Academy of Neurologic Music Therapy and, and became a neurologic music therapist so that I could really deepen my understanding about what happens in the brain when we experience music. And from there, I realized music is so much more than just listening to the to the album or uh, making music with instruments. And so I started to think about, you know, how, for example, how we use music with newborns. When we sing gently, when we use a lullaby voice, when we rock and sway and repeat words melodically in our vo- with our voice, you know, we do that with newborns because we know it soothes them. Um, and that's because the brain and the nervous system feel safe when we use our voice in that way. And so I thought, well, you know, we can be doing this with ourselves and our partners and our children. Um, and I started to look at ways that we can use music very simply and, and in a way that's going to create predictability. So I do a lot of melodic mantra, which is I just sing one tiny short phrase, which is an affirmation. And then I just sing it over and over and over and over. And this is this is great for children and, and people of all ages. And just the act of that has so many therapeutic outcomes. Firstly, the singing is a controlled breathing exercise. The melody activates the limbic system so our emotions can move through us without becoming pent up. The repetition of the phrase over and over creates a sense of predictability in the environment. And so when our brain can predict what's coming next and then that thing does come next, the brain feels very in control. So when the brain feels in control, it's less likely to be in survival mode or it's more likely to come out of survival mode. So any music that is simple and repetitive is wonderful for anxiety management. And a lot of those are the things our kids already love, like Baby Shark and all the annoying stuff. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the annoying stuff is like the really therapeutic stuff. If it gets stuck in your head, <laughs> then it's good for us. I know that you celebrate um, your autistic identity. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about your one woman doing great work in the world. Talk to me about the difference you believe that you can make as an autistic person that makes you different from other people? I think uh, for me personally with the platform I have and and all of these conferences and seminars that I'm invited to speak at, which I'm very honoured to do, I think I have a, a real opportunity to use my voice to share my own personal experiences in a way that offers deeper insight for others. Because a lot of parents of autistic children, well, I'm going to say, a lot of them are autistic and don't know it because mm-hmm. we know that autism is genetic. Um, but, you know, we didn't used to know that. So a lot of people don't know that information yet. And so there's a lot of autistic parents who don't know they're autistic um, who are triggered by a lot of what is happening with their children because it was either forced out of them as children or it was like they practised really hard to not experience those same things themselves. So there can be a lot of, like, confusion when parents are trying to support their autistic children. And a lot of it stems from them being autistic and not knowing it. And a lot of it stems from their own conflict between what the textbook says they should be doing and what their own instinct says is the right way forward to support their kids. So just by sharing my own insights and my own lived experience, I feel that offers a deeper insight into 
the world, the inside world of just one autistic person. Uh, and it's certainly my experience is not the same for everybody else. That's for sure. But, you know, I think that's in the end, that's all I have to offer is my own story. And that's what I like to share. And I think that that the more people who do that, the more information we collect. And the easier, hopefully, the world will get for our children on the spectrum, our children and Absolutely. adults. Absolutely. Well, Alison, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Alison Davies. You can find out more about her therapeutic work at her website, and I'll put links to that website in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review, or favourite. That way, you'll get all the new episodes, plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.